Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans. Welcome to episode number 348 of the Peristyle Podcast. Got a big show for you this week. Talking about USC going to the Holiday Bowl with uscfootball.com beat writer Dan Weber. We have uh, Coach Harry Hyde on secret assignment this week, so we won't have him on. We'll get him on back next week. We want to talk all about the bowl game, what it means. We've got a lot of questions from all of you out there. Speaking of questions, you can always email us, podcast at uscfootball.com. If you want to ask us anything about the USC football team or recruiting, you can call us at 206-888-6755. Leave a brief voicemail. You can, we will play that on the air for you and talk about your question. Or you can also go to peristylepodcast.com. That's our website for the show. And on the left side of the page, leave a voicemail right from your computer. So lots of ways to get a hold of us. We appreciate all the questions you've been sending in. Without further ado, I want to bring in Dan Weber. What's up, Dan? How you doing? Pretty good. And 348. Wow. It just doesn't seem like more than 310. <laughs> it keeps it, The years keep piling on. It was back in 2008 yeah. signing day. So I guess we're going on uh, seven years now. It'll be seven years this signing day. So crazy amount of, amount of shows we've done amazing. for the podcast. Um, yep, that's amazing. And I've only been here for... A couple of hundred of those, so I uh, feel like uh, a real newbie. Yeah, no, you're definitely not a newbie, Dan, but thank we appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your insights. And we wanted to talk about the bowl game, and I just wanted to let people know, too, um, recruiting season is certainly heating up. A lot of official visitors the past couple of weekends. And Scout let us do this great promotion that's actually ending Monday at midnight on the West Coast. So if you haven't taken advantage of it, um, if you sign up for an annual membership to uscfootball.com, they're going to give you six months free. So basically 18 months for the price of 12. It's a $99 deal. You can even get it as a gift for somebody if you'd like. Um, but this this is a crazy deal. I don't, I've never seen anyone do a deal like this where you get six months free. So it'll get you two signing days, basically. Uh, but it does end at midnight, so you can go to uh, uscfootball.com. And if you, you sign up for the annual, if you're monthly already, you just sign up for the annual. It'll cancel your monthly you need to use the code ANNUAL18, though. ANNUAL18, all one word. And if you're listening to the show on Tuesday and you really want to take advantage of it, uh, drop me an email, even up to Wednesday, but they probably won't do much after that. But email me specifically, and I can kind of set it up for you. But you can do it to yourself up until Monday at midnight. USCfootball.com, your subscription. Uh, ANNUAL18 is the code. And uh, they probably will never do this again, but I'm really glad that, that Scout did. So it's been a fun one, Dan. We've done it the last couple of weeks, and a lot of people are taking advantage. Yeah, we're seeing uh, names uh, coming back that uh, we're really glad to you know to see on the peristyle. And uh, by the way, that pitch was worthy of uh, one of those guys with the uh, Vegas betting line that you hear on the, on the drive-in on on the weekends. Uh, that was great. Nice job. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. I, I I didn't really put any notes down for it. I just put last day on my notes. So I wanted to let people know. I don't. Know, I get you get good at this after a while. You start doing 348 shows. You kind of know what to do if you have to pitch something. You can. You get the, You get pretty good at it. Very good. <laughs> uh, well, I wanted to talk about um, the bowl selection. Uh, you know, it, it happened. There was, you know, you were talking about it looked like the Holiday Bowl. That's what a lot of people were saying. Uh, we kind of heard some stuff late that once Arizona stayed in the top ten, 
that you know maybe the Alamo would take uh, USC. I actually got a lot of flack on Twitter from UCLA fans, Dan. I don't know if you saw that. That the, the fact that I could suggest that the Alamo would take USC over UCLA, they weren't deserving. They lost you know an extra game and they lost head to head. And it, to me, it was like, look, I, I mean, it's easier I think for USC fans to go to the Holiday. I like the Holiday better than the Alamo, but the Alamo is a, a higher ranked bowl. I wasn't like saying that UCLA should be slighted. Just this kind of stuff we were. We're hearing, but man, there was a, there was some real uh, angst uh, about that. But I don't know. I, I think it worked out good for both teams, where UCLA gets to go to Alamo and and USC gets to go to the Holiday. Yeah, I think the worry with the UCLA people was that where would they drop to if they didn't go to the Alamo? Because of uh, you know the word was I mean, the word we got. I talked to the Holiday Bowl guy at USC uh, well two weeks actually in a row, and uh, he clearly. They wanted USC. It wasn't any doubt. Now, they've had Arizona State and UCLA the last two years. They've never had USC. Uh, so I think there was a clear sense of Holiday wanted USC. And so uh, had, uh, had you know UCLA got knocked out of the Alamo Bowl, they'd have probably dropped below USC, which would have been uh, – that would have been hard for the UCLA fans to take, let's, let's face it. So I could understand – you know them reacting, uh, reacting that way. So, uh, but uh, yeah, this is fine. I mean, if you're going to play Nebraska, you're going to play Kansas State. I think, you know, either game. But that's what you wanted. You wanted to come out of the bowl playing somebody that uh, really, you know, that the team gets you know excited about, that the fans get excited about, the TV people, you know, like a team that's got some players, which you know Nebraska certainly has on both sides of the ball. I mean, it's obviously a serious football program. If you fire your head coach after a 9-3 and three season, uh, you know, you're a serious football program. And, you know, with USC and UCLA, I, I mean, uh, excuse me, in Nebraska, USC's got 50 all-time uh, bowl appearances, uh, Nebraska 51. So, uh, you know, you're talking about two of the, you know, premier all-time bowl, you know, bowl teams, and, and that's a great matchup. And, and I like it that Nebraska – as I mentioned yesterday, I think it was that uh, Nebraska was one of the teams, one of the few big-time programs during the era of Pete and Pete's heyday who would schedule USC and, you know, played them twice and, you know, suffered for it, Nebraska did, with, uh, with some teams they thought maybe had a chance to be pretty good. And, and uh, you know, it was a tough matchup against USC. But give Nebraska credit. They were willing, you know, to play – uh, the Trojans, and uh, for that you really, you really, you know, want to salute uh, a Nebraska program that really, really wants to be as good as it, it was in those, you know, in that era when we remember it so well. Might not ever get get to that point again, but you know they, uh, and it'll be interesting to have a Mike Riley involved in the game, one of the classiest, sweetest, uh, most decent guys, and you know, in all of football at every level, and he get, he kind of gets to go back home to San Diego where he coaches the Chargers. He gets to go back home and away against USC. He's already played him this year at Oregon State, and he was an assistant at USC. So there's a whole lot of kind of those kinds of uh, friendly connections that you really like, and I think Nebraska will bring a, you know, a bunch of fans, and that's always kind of cool to you know bring folks out of the you know cold Midwest to uh, Southern California, uh, you know, in the holiday season, that's that's always a great deal. So there's a lot to like about about the game. Uh, certainly. Um, as far as uh, um, the coach, though, Mike Riley, I, I don't know if he'll actually be – he'll probably be there, but there, Bart, uh, 
Barney Cotton is going to be the the interim head coach for Nebraska in the game. Uh, right. I think he'll kind of. You would guess he'd do it a lot like Sark did. You know, where he he's got a lot longer head start. Sark had just you know been named. Uh, you know, he's got a longer head start anyway. Uh, it seems like than Sark. Uh, but uh, you know, Sark was there in the press box and uh, watched uh, interim coach Clay Elton do such a great job with USC. So. I think uh, the good example of last year is don't under underestimate uh, uh, you know an interim coach uh, yeah. as, as a team's motivated and uh, you know we'll see. I don't know how it plays out for Nebraska. I think that I don't know that they do. Uh, I don't. I don't. I don't know. I mean, with USC last year, I think they they took six of their permitted 15 bowl practices. Now with the game so early, it wasn't going to ever be easy to get them all. But I know people were thinking, gosh, just six practices? Are they going to be ready to play? And they had 44 scholarship players dressed. And, uh, you know, they couldn't have played better. I mean, they just looked like, you know, whatever happened, uh, you know, as much as they were, you know, crazy about playing for Ed Orgeron and he was gone, uh, that team just stayed together and and, uh, went out and played. Um, Speaking of Mike Riley, though, John had a question. He's like, why would Mike Riley turn down the USC head coaching job several times only to take – Nebraska's offer. So it's just kind of a, it's not really about the game, but I thought it was an interesting question. Yeah, you know, uh, Mike grew up in Corvallis where his dad was an assistant at at, uh, at Oregon State, and he went to uh, Alabama, and, you know, you're talking Tuscaloosa, big time the program is. Uh, I don't know if it was just more of a, you know, he had, a, he had those years uh, uh, at San Diego. But he may not be a big-town guy. I don't know. I mean, he, he, when you talk to him, he does seem like a guy really, you know, comfortable, uh, you know, in a setting more like Lincoln than L.A. And those are two pretty different settings uh, from Lincoln to L.A. The programs, you know, try to be comparable. But uh, uh, I think that might be part of it. The other part of it is I think at this point, uh, I think there are some limitations just structural limitations as to what you can do in Corvallis at Oregon State. And now that you're in the same state, uh, they used to have kind of a, you know, parity a little bit with Oregon. Uh, they don't now, you know, with all the money and all the backing and all the national attention that Oregon's getting with, you know, Phil Knight and Nike and all the other things that, that they've got going for them. Uh, it's a really tough battle to be the other team in Oregon right now. And uh, uh, the chance that they had to overachieve and to hit this, you know, where they hit oh, the Rogers brothers and, you know, some of those players that they've had some really good players and, and you know, are all over the NFL right now. Uh, those teams, so many uh, teams are doing a better job. Those players, especially in the Pac-12, uh, those players aren't there maybe as much to, to be available. Or, or Mike used to get players out of Texas, for example. The problem is now or, uh, Baylor and uh, uh, TCU are not missing those kids now. They're getting them. They're just probably aren't the players left over that uh, Oregon State used to be able to really you know, get enough players, and they just don't have enough uh, probably potential good players. It's just a – that's a really tough job right now, I think. And, uh, and so, you know, Lincoln isn't going to be a great deal, you know, more hospitable, you know, about the same number of Division One prospects in the state. And, uh, you know, 
in, a, in the Big Ten, I guess maybe you've got a little better chance the way the Big Ten is divided up to, to compete. But ultimately, you know, at Nebraska, you're not going to compete with Ohio State. I mean, Michigan can't compete with Ohio State anymore. Uh, and so uh, it, it's going to be an interesting interesting challenge. But, I, you know, you, you can see Mike saying, you know, I need one more challenge. And he's 61, I guess. And uh, let me just see what we can do. We've got more resources, more, you know, bigger fan base. Um, let me just take a shot at this. So, But I don't think it would ever be a case of – I'm not sure if he would have been offered the USC job two weeks ago, he would have turned it down. My guess is he probably would not have. Interesting. All right. Uh, well, thanks for that question. And uh, let's go to Theo. And we, we've got a bunch of people that write us and they want us to ask Steve Sarkeesian questions or some of the coaches' questions and stuff. Uh, Theo likes doing that. He said, will you ask Sark how he plans to combat the pressure that Nebraska brings and if he'll go three wide with a six offensive lineman to protect Toa Lobodon against their All-American defensive end? If we pick up the pressure and run the ball, I'm pretty sure we'll route them. That's Theo. Well, running the ball will be the key, I think, without a doubt. Uh, so is this a game where, you know, they run it to set up the pass, uh, you know, the old-style old way? Uh, I mean, I you know, I, I, even the Nebraska people are, are worried about you know the run game, especially if you run it run it outside on them. So um, uh, I, you know, I think you might you might be onto something there. What you don't want them to do is over adjust and overreact and try to do things that they can't or that aren't the ideal things for them to do. I think with this young offensive line, if it's basic enough and ba- and, and essentially says. You've got the talent, you've got the size, you've got the athleticism. This is how we're going to do it. And they'll have enough time to get ready to do it. I mean, this shouldn't be one of those, like, the UCLA game where it looked like they just didn't have a clue what they wanted. They wanted to do some different things, and, you know, nobody seemed to know what, what they really wanted to do. The hope is, and I know that's a word that Sark said, <laughs> you got to believe, you got to know you're getting no hoping, but the hope here is that uh, they really settle on exactly what they want to do and they get it down to the point where we're going to do it. You know, we don't care what you do. We're going to do this. Uh, not stupid stuff, you know, not like running a ball up inside when they're bringing two linebackers up the, you know, the A-gap or something. Uh, but uh, uh, just the idea that, you know, yeah, we ought to be able to do what it is we do uh, against uh, against the Nebraska defense that has some – ability to do something but not the abil- not the ability to you know to really shut you down across the board um well we talked about the running game and we also had a question about some of Anuku in the running game so i wanted to uh read that one for you dan he said uh, since sark loves to run the ball but always has three or four receivers on the field and never a fullback uh, he said in parentheses some of Anuku 61 265 4.5 yard dash then put Soma in the tailback rotation. He would be a change of pace with power. And in parentheses, he's one of the strongest players on the team. Check him out during the Coach O year. In the single back, double tight end set, he had at least one 70-plus yard run that year. Use this junior or lose him. Thanks, Curtis, the longtime fan. Yeah, Curtis, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, watching him the other day, uh, you know, Soma lined up at a tailback deep. Give him a you know a running head start, and and get him a seam, and he's really difficult to deal with. Uh, 
you know, the times where he, you know, where they try to trick you and give him the ball out of fullback, you know, where he's basically got a step and a half before he hits the line of scrimmage, that's not the Soma that's uh, that's a big threat. But the Soma that, that gets rumbling, you know, it's got, you know, three or four, you know, good full-speed steps before he gets to the point of attack, that's a guy that's tough to deal with. I, I, I would absolutely agree with you. Uh, putting him in the tailback rotation and just hammering people with him. No, absolutely. And they did it a little bit at practice uh, last weekend. So who knows? We will see. Um, okay, so Andrew, this is kind of a long one. I'll read it for you, Dan. Um, but you got to talk to so, uh, man, Sua Craven. So USC, if you, people don't know, USC had three bowl practices Friday, Saturday, Sunday over the weekend. Got to talk to uh, Sua Cravens a little bit about you know his position and stuff like that. Um, and I, I know Dan had an interesting question for him, but uh, I want to read Andrew's question and then let you comment on it, Dan. Uh, with Leon McQuay injured, USC is left with two safeties. True freshman John Plattenberg, generously listed at 5'11", 180, and senior, senior Gerald Bowman. McQuay has had a difficult year and has arguably lost the confidence of the coaching staff. Who do they decide to move to the position to help out? Chris Hawkins, a promising corner, is listed at 185 pounds, but probably closer to 170. Safety play has been a major, major point of weakness for the team all season. The move, regardless of Hawkins' experience at the position, is probably an upgrade. The bewildering question is, why don't they move the 2013 freshman All-American safety and 2014 preseason first team Pac-12 safety back to his true position? So he's talking about Sua Cravens because he is a playmaker. Because after he makes a sack on a first down, coming off the edge, the opposing team slides a tackle over to him on third down and throws a pass for a long touchdown. Apparently everyone finds it surprising that when teams are forced to pass on third and long or at the end of the game, uh, we have no one to rely on in the middle of the field. The other argument is that defensive line needs help generating a pass rush. I find that interesting, considering Leonard Williams will most likely go number one overall in the coming draft, and USC has the best defensive line in football heading into the season. Plus, who needs safety value? Who needs a safety valve when you can give up 150 yards and two touchdowns at the end of the game? Or is it because they don't have enough players because of sanctions? Apparently, the coaching staff doesn't think so, and have decided to only target one true safety and recruiting Marvell Tell, who might sign with UCLA. I understand everyone wants to stay positive with the new staff, but this one decision has, without a doubt, cost USC games. I am still in favor of the current staff, but they are not infallible, particularly when a remedy is so glaring. Wow. So, I'm sorry to read the whole thing, but that's Andrew writing about Sua Cravens should be playing safety. Well, I think Andrew mentioned... Uh, actually answered his question very early when he said that when you put, you know, uh, uh, Sua on the edge and he gets a sack fairly quickly and that they have to slide, you know, people over and adjust to that, there's your answer. They want him up uh, near the action, near where the football is. His numbers, he is much more productive up there. I mean, he, you can just stay away from him at safety. Uh, and, you know, sure, you could do things with him out of, out of the safety spot, too, but that takes even more coordination uh, among, you know, a group of fairly inexperienced players. And I think USC has is, is opted for conservatism and careful, being careful and, uh, and uh, trying to get Sua near where he can make more plays. Yeah, it's baffling, the, the whole defensive line, the fact that 
you know, basically you, you got Leonard playing a lot of two gap where he's got, you know, automatic double team and his job is to hold people off instead of making plays. I mean, I think that there's a difference between say Pete's bend don't break attitude. And these, and this, what we've got now is, uh, I think at that point, you saw guys still making plays with Pete. They, you know, the linebackers were free to make plays. The, you know, defensive tackles made plays. Uh, and, and it was a big playmaking defense, even though it was fairly conservative. Now you've got a not very playmaking defense uh, with that kind of built-in conservative kind of attitude and let's protect ourselves and hope everything works well and, and then hope to, you know, safeties don't take bad angles or take a play off. And that's happened, and they've really gotten, you know, burned with it. Obviously, you remember the UCLA game and what happened down the middle. So um, I think there are a lot of ways you can look at this. I mean, I think one of the better things they've done is taking the chance with Sua and turning him loose to make plays. I wish they'd do more of that. Uh, and, and I think you might be, for example, uh, I think some of your uh, estimations on, on size um, talked to Chris Hawkins the other day, listed at 185, but he's playing right now at 182. So he's pretty much spot on. He, he's not – he's a strong kid for a corner. Uh, I think he's got the potential to, to be that extra safety. Uh, John Plattenberg, I think you're way under, underestimating him. He is really put together – I don't think the 185 is low at all on him. He's a very strong, very quick, very tough kid. Uh, you know, certainly has the potential, I think, to be one of those swing guys that, that could play both ways, but, but is, has the physicality to play, uh, play safety. But, you know, you're right. I, I think uh, standing around and kind of hoping you don't screw up is probably not the way <laughs> to uh, – to translate a so-called attacking defense that we were told we were getting uh, onto the field. And obviously we've seen what's happened at, at the end of, you know, a couple of games that never should have been lost when all you had to do was give a team one bad play and they weren't able to do that. So, so I agree uh, with some of it and, and, and to kind of explain some of the other there for Andrew. Okay, uh, thanks for that one, Andrew. I thought it was a well-written question. It was, I, sorry, it's a little long, but I wanted to read the whole thing for you, Dan. Uh, James in Kansas City said, the past couple of years, I've noticed your team, uh, he's talking about our uscfootball.com team in the podcast, does a great job of identifying great players in advance of the players becoming recognized as a star. Two examples would be Buck Allen and Sua Cravens. Two years ago, Dan Weber kept talking about him, and I kept wondering, who is this Buck Allen? And then he got to play. And I had no more questions. Similarly, um, when everyone else was simply considering Stuart Cravens to be among the number of highly regarded recruits with a high ceiling, your team singled him out and his play repeatedly. Again, having my attention drawn to him, I began to see what a difference-making playmaker he is. That said, are there any players that you are seeing elevating themselves in this way for next year? Thanks. Love the show. James in Kansas City. Boy, that's a really, really good question. Yeah, I like it a lot. Excellent question. I mean, okay, it, it's a gimme. <laughs> Every day we watch him, Adoree Jackson is just – and the fact that he and Juju Smith go at one another purposely every day, I think on both sides of the ball. I mean, and, and again, that's like shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, with you know, you're going to say Adoree and Juju. But, uh, you know, I mean, if there were – you wanted to list the five – 
top freshmen in the country, those two are on the list. I mean, uh, but, uh, but we get to see them every day in practice, and uh, they do some spectacular things, uh, those two. Another guy I think we keep seeing getting better and better and doing more and more things and more comfortable and confident he feels on his knee is Stephen Mitchell. He's got some really special ability in, uh, to move in space, and, uh, and we saw it in high school. Didn't get to see it last year after the knee surgery, but uh, it, you know it's coming along now, and uh, he uh, he's got he's got some special ability. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, Dan. With like Sue Craven was a five star player, and like Ju- you know Juju Smith and Adoree Jackson are five star players. I think that kind of shows when we're hyping them in high school. I mean, those are guys who are like okay, not every five star player is going to you know, pan out, but I think recruiting matters. I mean, those Juju Smith and Adoree Jackson were signing day guys. Like if they, if USC doesn't get those guys on signing day, their, comp- their entire season is completely different. Buck Allen, I think is different because he was buried on the depth chart and you kind of pointed it out. And I think we've seen that happen before with like an Allen Bradford would be getting 80 yard touchdown runs in practice. We had pointed out, Hey, what's going on here. And then sometimes it doesn't work out like a Jordan Cameron, or uh, David Osbury, we would say, hey, they're making all these plays in practice or in the summer workouts, and then they don't play in the game. And then people ask us, well, what were you talking about? Well, both those guys go on to the NFL and, and make plays. So it's kind of funny that you know it, it could have worked out. There, there, you know, Buck Allen, we you might not have seen him if if the coaching change didn't happen because he was really kind of in the doghouse before that. Yeah, no, uh, but we don't make it up. I mean, if <laughs> we tell you they did something spectacular, we're not trying, you know, we're not – you know, trying to do anything other than tell you what happened. And, uh, and you know, more often than not, we're probably right. It's hard the way they structure things. I mean, we, we can tell you more about the, the receivers and the running backs. We can't tell you as much about <clears throat> the offense and defensive linemen. They just don't get that chance to, you know, to do, uh, to do what it is they need to do. Uh, but, uh, but usually – I mean, that's the one advantage of being there. We really do get to see him. Yeah, we get to see him a lot. All right, but that was a great question. Thanks for that one. Uh, this is interesting from Aaron in North Carolina. Love the podcast. Listen every week. Thank you, Aaron. Uh, I know there have been discussions about practice time versus game times and that the difference could cause fatigue and alertness problems. I felt that this was true but lacked the scientific knowledge. I decided to ask my daughter, who is a biology and neuroscience major at Wake Forest. The condition is called long-term potentiation. I think it's P-O-T-E-N-T-I-A-T-I-O-N. And yes, your body is conditioned by what you do consistently at that time of each day. Basically, you're conditioned by day parts. So maybe if the game times are changed to early morning, we would be 11 and 0. Uh, Kidding, of course, but Surprising, you wouldn't take every advantage that you could. That's Aaron from North Carolina. It's interesting. I think the uh, the issue here is there are so many different game times now. You couldn't even, you know, try to. Uh, essentially, you'd probably have to go with a late afternoon. Uh, I'm I'm an afternoon practice person, to be honest with you. I think uh, I think it helps them the rest of their school day. Uh, so, uh, you know. For us, uh, you know, the downside is you get in the morning hour rush hour, you get a rush hour coming to practice. You know, the easy part is coming home. The second thing is for them, uh, that they, uh, uh, 
so I mean, we're not, you know, I don't think we're invested in this, uh, all of that much, uh, either way. I do think, you know, it's, we've seen it with Lane that the players who, uh, uh, you know, have to go from practice to class every day for, you know, September, October, November, and into December here a little bit. That's a hard, that's a hard hit because, you know, they've got to be up and, and focused on practice and then they've, uh, and then they've got, you know, their full day ahead of them. Uh, whereas uh, I just think it works better in the afternoon. Now, Sark, I think, liked it because they didn't have them in, uh, they didn't have them in school for a month at Washington with the quarter system. didn't start till October. So they had a whole, whole um, you know, month where they needed to do something with those guys. And by having them early in the morning, and they kind of got to keep them, like, all day, and they didn't have to go off to class. So I think that's almost more of the issue uh, than trying to approximate the game times. But if you went in the afternoon and then you take your theory, uh, if you went in the afternoon, it would be the closest to the different game. The early, you know, you've got some early afternoon, you got a, uh, a significant number of late afternoon and a significant number of evening games. Uh, I think the, the afternoon practices, you know, work the best. Whether you can scientifically prove that to the coaches, uh, I don't know. What you do know is early morning practices, you're never going to play an early morning game. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, I mean, and the field is a little slick, and it is different. I mean, it, <clears throat> one of the things that we've noticed, too, is your early morning practices, the um, players' parents aren't able to most, – mostly, uh, you know, who work. Some of them used to be able to get there in the afternoon, you know, toward the end of the day. Almost none of them can make practice now. And that was kind of a neat thing, even though – now we're not allowed to talk to the you know the players there, <laughs> but it was neat to see him there. And now you really don't you don't see him there. So I kind of would I, it wouldn't bother me at all if they went back to afternoon practices and, and at least got the closest. I, I don't think you could go week to week, for example, if you've got a an early game one week and a late game the next week. I don't think you could do that. That I just I don't think you could adjust that quickly or have that much impact if you change your practices based on the game time, but if you had afternoon practices, that probably would be the closest to when you're going to play. And Dan, I know you got to run. I just want to give, I'll give you one quick one, if that's okay, if you got time for sure. and, absolutely. Um, Jamal wanted to know, he said, I believe the coaches should put together and send up to the NCAA videos of why these teams who are successful with the bubble, with the bubble screens and pick, and pick plays, the wide receivers are blocking before the quarterback throws the ball. Example, the last play, of the Utah game, wide receivers number nine. So Jamal wants us to fix the NCAA there. So I don't know if we can do that. That's interesting, though. I mean, I, oh, you'd have to first go to the Pac-12. I'm sure they would solve that officiating uh, issue there. Sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, and I'm really down on the Pac-12 for all kinds of reasons, as well as just the darn athleticism of the officials. And one of the things you see happening on these bubble screens is if they're throwing it – to you, you know, where you are, you're the official on the sideline, and here comes the ball, you're getting out of the way first and foremost, getting out of the way. You're not worrying about is that guy blocking before the ball, you know, they're not, they don't care about that. They just want to not get run over. And, uh, uh, you know, those are the, some of the things that, you know, having been a high school coach and watched officials and you got all kinds of officials that you immediately recognize the guys that really had a, a comfort level with the game. And you don't see that as much with the Pac-12. You just don't see a comfort level. So 
So that'll be my parting shot. Uh, we'll take a, take a shot at the Pac-12 officials. You can never go wrong there. <laughs> All right. Well, Dan, thanks for coming on the show, and uh, it's always fun. We'll uh, keep talking about the ball practices and as the teams get ready to face Nebraska. Okay, that's good. Thanks, Ryan. Enjoyed it. All right. Thanks, Dan. And everyone else, okay. we'll be back in a minute. I'm going to take, I've got some more questions left over. And since Harvey Hyde's on secret assignment, I will come in and answer them myself. So should be a fun little segment. Stay tuned for that. Meet us on the other side of the break for more of the Peristyle Podcast. Tickets, tickets, tickets. SC Tickets is your concert, sports, and theater ticket source. We have the tickets you need to any event worldwide. Football tickets are now available. Call SC Tickets now at 1-800-888-7287. 1-800-888-7287. That's 1-800-888-7287. Or visit us on the web at sctickets.com. SC Tickets, concert, sports, and theater. Oh, man. What's wrong? It's my marketing guy. I can't get in touch with him, and I'm still waiting on simple website changes to get done. Who are you using? Uh, Some cheap and easy website company. I just can't get results. It's so frustrating. I never had that problem with my marketing company. I use Circle Marketing. They're always available, very friendly, and do great work. My business has seen improvements. They handled my website, online ads, and much more. Go to CircleMarketing.com and see if they're right for you. CircleMarketing.com, huh? Well, I'll go there right now. We now return to the Peristyle Podcast and your host, Ryan Abraham. All right. We're back at the Peristyle Podcast. I want to do a little bit different. Um, since Coach Harvey Hyde was on Secret Assignment this week, he's actually in Las Vegas. They, we still had a bunch of other questions, kind of more general ones uh, about USC football that I wanted to get to and uh, talk about in this segment. And if you if it was your question, it wasn't answered to your satisfaction, you could just write back in and uh, send them again and say, I want Coach or Dan or whoever to want to answer this. We're going to try to do another podcast this week, too, maybe get a special guest. We weren't able to, to wind it all up in this first show on, on Monday, but we'll try to do some more. And, of course, we'll keep doing those Thursday shows with Gerard Martinez, the, uh, the Turned Up SC recruiting shows that are for our premium uscfootball.com members only. All right, so Melvin wrote in, now that the final four has been selected, do you agree or disagree with the four teams? And it's interesting, Melvin. Um, as you know, Pat Hayden is on the committee, and um, you know I thought the committee did a pretty good job of this. I think it's a lot better than the BCS. People say, oh, it's the same thing. No, I mean, you wouldn't have got, you know, would Oregon been left out of the BCS? Because Florida State probably would have moved up, and if they, was an unde- they were an undefeated team, I don't think you'd keep them out of the top two. Just like they're undefeated, you can't keep them out of the top four. If there were eight teams, you might not have had them at as high as they were. They might have moved down. So uh, I think it would be interesting to see. But under the circumstances, I never thought Ohio State, like my gut feeling, and just kind of go with your gut on this. I'm not you know, saying this, this is this or this is that. But my gut feeling was Ohio State, the Big, 12, uh, the Big Ten wasn't good enough. Ohio State shouldn't be in there. Um, I, I, you know, I – I didn't really know. I mean, with TCU and Baylor, it was almost like flipping a coin. I, I get the head-to-head thing. Um, but, you know, TCU's schedule is a little bit tougher. So, interesting that once I saw what happened on championship weekend, my gut feeling completely changed, and I'm like, Ohio State should be in there. And I think there's a few different reasons. I, I posted a little bit about this on Peristyle. Uh, people were kind of talking about the selection committee. Um, in the back of my mind, I think I'm punishing the Big 12, like honestly, for 
not determining their own champion. So they they decided to let tiebreakers go. They didn't want to pick one. Well, if they would have picked one, would it have helped? I you know I think it might have. I mean, you don't even know the conference doesn't even know who their champion is. So how do you pick one over the other, especially if there's someone else as deserving or pretty close to as deserving as Ohio State is? Um, so I think that's in there. The fact that they won with a, a third string quarterback, um, I think, shows the kind of athletes that are on that squad. Uh, you know, Urban Meyer recruits really well. There's athletes on the team. And uh, you get your third-string guy coming in and doing well. I think it shows the committee we can win. We could beat an Alabama if you if you put us in there. And I, I don't think I don't think the committee wants to see blowouts happen. They want to try to make you know the the best pairings possible. And would TCU or Baylor get blown out by Alabama? I think if you look at it, they got a better chance of getting blown out than Ohio State does, um, just because they do have the athletes. So I think winning with that third-string quarterback showed them something. And I think that really meant something to the committee. Um, and, you know, it, it's this is one of the back-of-the-head things. It's in the back of your mind. You might not come out and say it. But a traditional power is easier to put in there than a non-traditional power. And TCU, it wasn't that long ago, they weren't even a, a Power 5 conference team. Um, so, and we, you know, it's not like we've seen Baylor for years and years, you know, crushing opponents. They've, both those teams have done really well in recent history, but Ohio state's got a, a crap load of long time history. So I think that's kind of those internal tiebreakers in the back of your head that if you pick Ohio state, you know, they've been there before you're less likely to have some huge blowout happen. You're like, wow, why did TCU or, Oh, why did ba- Baylor even get in there? Um, you could, it's state, you could still end up saying the same thing with Ohio state, but it's like a safer pick because it's a team that you've seen before. You've seen them in that situation. They've, they've won national championships. So, you know, kind of what you're getting there. So I think there's a lot of different factors, but, um, I, I don't think that the big 10 is very good this year. Uh, I do think, you know, the win over Wisconsin in that kind of resounding fashion was, was big. And I don't know if they would have got in if they didn't get the kind of style points, you know, the shutout. And, and the third-string quarterback kind of going crazy. So I, I think it just shows the committee it's a good enough team to get in there. So, I you know, Sark told – I asked Sark this question on Sunday, who his top four – you know, if he – you know, did he feel the committee got it right? And uh, – no, I think this was before the, the, the rankings came out. But who he felt like w- should get in there. And he said, well, you know, I have a coach's poll vote. So he had to pick a top four. And he agreed with – what the committee said, he agreed with, with, with what I said. But to be honest, it was more of a gut thing for me. Um, it's just seeing that and, and then kind of, you know, compiling all of that data in your head. I was like, well, I, I think that's what the way it should be. And I, I think the committee kind of felt the same way. I Maybe you can't put exactly your finger on what it is, but there's a lot of different factors. So I do think they, they got it right. I would much rather see an 18 playoff. I think the argument against the playoff was the hard part. We have a playoff now. The argument was that the um, you're talking about the regular season getting worse. Well, it didn't get worse. I think it got enhanced. It made it even better. So you're adding so to go from four to eight. You're adding one game, and I don't think that's that big of a deal. So you you make the regular season better. You're going to get more teams in. You got five power conferences, only four spots. I mean, that's just a recipe for disaster. A kindergarten math student will tell you that. So. I think it's going to be easier now to get to eight. I'm a, you know, people get mad. You start talking about eight. We just, we haven't had our four yet, but I think you should have eight. I think it'll be great. And uh, I do think the committee got it right. So Melvin, hopefully that answers your question. 
All right, now we have an international question. This is from Tech in Seoul, Korea. Thanks for writing in, Tech. It's T-A-E-K, but he says pronounced Tech. So thanks, Tech, for writing in all the way from the other side of the Pacific Ocean. Now that Bopolini and uh, Muschamp have been canned, do you think there is a possible way Sark will come to his senses and can that pathetic excuse of a defensive coordinator, Justin Wil- not Justin Wilcox, Justin will never blitz and hire either of these two? Or will Sark continue to be stubborn and a loyal softy? Major concern since Leonard Williams and J.R. Tavai are gone next year and it looks like we'll have a non-existent pass rush. Also, why does the bowl committee deprive us USC fans of any Pac-12 SEC matchups? For over a decade, I've been drooling to see what would happen if the Pac-12 schools got to a matchup with an overrated East Coast media-biased SEC team. I'd bet my 10 toes that the top eight Pac-12 teams would beat most of the top eight in the SEC. The two best conferences should be matched up more often during the bowl season, and tradition politics shouldn't be the reason for depriving fans of watching these matchups. After all, we finally have a playoff. Shouldn't we embrace changes in the bowls too? Wow. Okay, Tech, thanks for writing those in there. So the first thing on... Uh, Justin Wilcox, or he calls him Justin, will never blitz. Yeah, I did write that story about USC blitzing uh, the least amount in the entire country, uh, at least of the Power Five schools. But they did step it up and blitz a little bit more now. Now, to me, I, I don't think Steve Sarkeesian is going to get rid of Justin Wilcox at this point. I mean, I don't, I, you know, they, I think they had the second-ranked defense or something in the in the Pac-12. There were some breakdowns at the end. I've been very critical of of some of the play calling and things like that, but Sark sort of hinted about the, how, and I think Dan talked about this a little bit too. They were, he, you know, right or wrong, he was trying to protect the defense. And I, I don't think you needed to really do that. And I think, you know, Dan agrees with me, uh, but that was their strategy. Uh, they should have more bodies going in next year. I don't think there'll be as many non-used excuses. I guess you could say if they're not playing fast and aggressive and attacking, they should have more bodies. There should be more depth. Um, you know, they're going to need some freshman contributions again, just like this year. And you're going to have to have that until they get the roster kind of back up to where they are. But I don't see Sark making a change um, at this point. Would Justin Wilcox take the Oregon State job or something like that? Um, I think his brother was on Oregon radio saying they didn't have any plans to do anything like that. So Justin Wilcox could potentially get a job and leave on his own. I don't think Steve Sarkeesian is going to force him out. Now, if USC lost to, to Notre Dame at the end against a struggling Notre Dame team, maybe that'd be different. But they finished eight and four. They split with the rivals. To me, the rivalry games are so important. And that was a big knock on Orgeron last year. I'm not saying his fault or whatever, but he didn't beat either rival, to, you know, either of the rivals games. So the fact that Sark did, I think you got to give him credit. And, you know, I, very, again, I've been very critical. And uh, Sark got mad at me at one of the press conferences for asking a question about why they never blitz um but you know i'm going to give credit where credit's due they look terrible against ucla i mean that's i felt was completely on the coaching team wasn't prepared one team was up one team was not but he bounced back seven days later they looked really good against uh notre dame who yes they they were struggling but they still have athletes they're still notre dame they're still that rivalry you're you know that's that's a real win i you beat ucla or notre dame and they're 0 and 11. That's a, a still to me. That's a real win because that's your rivalry games. That's what fans care about the most. So I'm not taking anything away from that win. I just don't think they're going to make a kind of change like that. 
if people leave, it will probably be on their own at this point. Now, Sark could prove me wrong, but that's just kind of my gut feeling. As far as the bowl committee, uh, there's not really a committee like picking these bowls. That, that's all kind of set up ahead of time. So the, they go into bowls with matchups. Uh, not, you know, I'm not talking about the, 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 I don't even know what they call them now. I forget the, the power bowls, you know, the, the big bowls, the, the peach and the cotton and the rose and the shirt, you know, that they they have the playoff and then also the at-large teams that make it in like Arizona made it to the Fiesta Bowl. Um, all these bowls have agreements with the different conferences and just geographically, in my opinion, geographically, it's hard to match up Pac-12 and SEC schools as about as far as away. I mean, you're going to talk about University of Florida and Oregon State. I mean, that's about as far away as you can get in the country, in the continental U.S. So um, I think that's a lot of the problems. Now, could you argue that the Pac-12 needs to get better aligned with better bowls? Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think they're trying to do that, but a lot of the, you know, the Rose Bowl is huge, but you know, the Rose of the Fiesta are both on the West Coast, but they're like the, you know, they're not tied to the Pac-12 necessarily. The Rose Bowl was, and now it's part of the whole playoff thing. And the, so the Pac-12 still get a Rose Bowl team in there, but they needed to make some of the other bowls kind of better. The Holiday was always a cool one. They had to move that around. The Alamo now is in January. So, I mean, I think they're trying to elevate the levels of a lot of these bowls, but it's hard to get a matchup. Pac-12 and SEC, just geographically, they're so far apart. So you, I don't know if you want to send an SEC school all the way out to the Holiday Bowl or anything like that. Now, I'd like to see more of those, too. Um, you know, maybe some of the bowls in Texas, but you're going to have a lot of Big 12 teams playing in those. So it's kind of like if, if, if Pac-12 teams play further east, you're likely going to play against a, a Big 12 team. It's kind of like a buffer between the SEC and the Pac-12. So I don't know what the best solution is, but that's just kind of – my opinion on what all the bowls are, but I, you, I think the Pac-12 definitely needed to upgrade the bowls. I think they have, um, but it's still tough to get those kind of to match ups, and I still don't think they have anywhere near the kind of bowl cachet that the SEC does right now, where you have like fifth place teams playing in January. But uh, that's just my opinion. Speaking of the SEC, we got well one more question I wanted to kind of answer for you. This one's from Justin. It's a long one, so bear with me. Um, Interesting points. I wanted to uh, talk about this, and then we'll end the show, and hopefully you guys enjoyed it. said, I love the show. Thank you, Justin. Uh, I was listening to ESPN and just got sick of hearing about how wonderful the SEC is. So I ran some numbers. I'm not a statistician. I literally took less than five minutes doing this, so I assume that ESPN could figure this out as well. The SEC boasts a non-conference win percentage of 87.3%, which sounds pretty impressive until you put it in context. 76.8% of their games are home games against FCS or non-Power 5 opponents, a.k.a. roadkill games. 89.3% of their total non-conference games are home games or neutral that somehow always end up being in SEC country. Six of the 14 SEC teams scheduled 100% of their non-conference games this year to be roadkill games. So about half the SEC only scheduled roadkill games is what he's saying. There are only nine non-conference games all season for the 14 teams that are actually respectable matchups on the schedule. Of those nine non-conference games, six of them are home or a neutral SEC country. Not one game was scheduled against Notre Dame or a Pac-12 school. Their overall record for 2014 of those nine non-conference games I would consider respectable was four and five. So the win games that they played that were tough, they only they were under 500 in. Uh, their overall record for 2014 against Power 5 opponents that includes Texas Tech and Indiana, was 5-6. and six. 
They were one and four against the SEC, one and one against the Big Ten, three and one against the Big Twelve. In other words, with the exception of Tennessee playing Oklahoma, Florida playing Florida State, and a couple of flukes that resulted in Indiana beating Missouri and Temple beating Vanderbilt, all of their wins were already pre-planned on the schedule years ago. My question to you and either Dan or Coach is, um, this is going to be to me because Dan or Coach are on this segment. What about what about this is supposed to be impressive? If the Pac-12 scheduled 90% home games in non-conference play, went down to an eight-conference schedule, dropped Notre Dame, ACC, Big Ten, and Big 12 opponents from their schedule, and beat up on the likes of Sacramento State, Cal Poly, Pomona, etc., would ESPN find that impressive too? Or is this whole thing as much BS that insults our intelligence as it seems? This is a follow-up to my previous email regarding SEC non-conference games. The SEC went 0-4 against Power 5 opponents, uh, against the ACC, actually, last week. So it means that 14 teams of the 56 non-conference games, the SEC played 47 cupcakes and ended up 44-2 with one game canceled and nine games against Power 5 opponents and ended up 4-5. and five. Six of the nine games were home games or neutral games that weren't really neutral. By what standard is this dominant? Since they were 1-4 against ACC opponents this year, can you really even make the argument that they're the toughest conference in the southeast part of the country. That's from Justin. Long one there. And just I think you have some really good points, and uh, I'll kind of share my thoughts. I live in a half-SEC household with my wife being a University of Tennessee grad. Uh, we end up watching the Paul Feinbaum show. Sometimes it's kind of funny to, to see the, the centri- you know what it means to football you know, down there. And I was actually on Paul Feinbaum as a guest a couple times because of uh, when – Lane Kiffin was hired by the University of Tennessee, so it was obviously SEC ties. So he had me on. He was really great to me, and you know it was fun. You know, people said, "Oh, you got to worry about being on a show," but he, he, nothing was wrong. It was, it, we had a great time with him. Um, but no, I agree with you, and I think you have to. You don't have as many matchups. You don't have as many opportunities to make a statement against the SEC. But when you do, I think you have to take advantage of it, and that happened last weekend or previous weekend, when, you know, Georgia Tech, uh, Clemson, you know, you know, Clemson, these teams are beating the SEC teams head-to-head, and the SEC went 0-4. And, and if Auburn was able to beat Alabama, they could have been held out of the playoff completely. So I think once you go ahead and make a statement against the SEC when you have a chance, it you know, I think people will take notice of that. Um now, is there always going to be – is there bias? And some people say, oh, there's no bias. I think there really is. It, the eight-game conference schedule versus nine is a big deal. And you're just – this year, though, there was a lot of good matchups in the SEC. So a lot of the teams really did have to play each other. And so I think that helped when you have to play more of the, the top teams playing each other. You're going to knock each other off. And we saw that in the – you know, the SEC West is still, I mean, extremely powerful. I think it's the best division in, in college football. I like the Pac-12 South, second to that, um, and Oregon outclasses all of them. So it's interesting in the Pac-12, you have the best team in the North, but all the better teams, the next best teams are all in the South. So I think that kind of makes it more interesting, where in the SEC, all the powerful teams were on one side. I think it just changes the dynamic a little bit. Like if Alabama was in the East and just dominated the East and got to play the next best team from the West, um, I think that would have been you know, impressive too. But those early games um, in this in the season, I think, set up everything. And I think, specifically about the Pac-12, you got to win those out of conference games. The Pac-12, 
USC would go out and beat an SEC team when they played them or a tough team on the road, you know, Ohio State, or go back and play Virginia Tech. They would win those games, but the rest of the conference wasn't doing a good job of that. I think it's getting better now. Oregon beating Michigan State was something that resonated throughout the entire season. I mean, that was something that this was Big 12, I mean, Big 10 versus Pac-12 going head-to-head. The best, what you thought were the best team in each conference, and Oregon handled them pretty good. That makes the whole conference better. Well, the SEC, they haven't scheduled a whole lot of those, especially early in the season. But the the, the ones they did schedule, they won. You know, uh, they would go, you know, West Virginia get pounded by Alabama, or, or not pounded, but they got beat by Alabama. Wisconsin had a real shot against LSU, who's not a very good SEC team this year. I mean, they're not that good. And couldn't win that game. I mean, so if you if Wisconsin could have won that game or West Virginia could have knocked off, I think you changed the narrative early in the season. But the narrative, I think the narrative changed a little bit, but only at the end when the SEC went 0 and 4 on that final day. Um, the talk was should the SEC, you know, if would Alabama get in or not if they lost to Auburn? The talk wasn't oh there should be two or three SEC teams in there. Now throughout the season, you're getting inflated rankings and all that. Um, from the SEC. I, I do honestly believe that. And they had three teams in the thing at, at, at one time, but they hadn't played each other yet. But I think you can change that. you got to win some of those early games. I do think we're going to see a few less of those quote-unquote roadkill games like you were talking about because of the playoff. Um, the SEC saw that there wasn't even close to getting two teams in there. Um, so that's what they would like to do. I mean, they wanted to get two in the top two, let alone two in the top four. They talked about three. Uh, it's not going to happen uh, like this. But if you know, if if a team did schedule some of the better, you know, a better out of conference game, and they lo- they were, you know, they did lose a game, uh, you know, they maybe lost to Alabama and they were eleven and one, but with an impressive schedule, I think you get them in there a lot easier. So I think I think you're right. I mean, I think there's some there's definitely some questions about how they're scheduling games and will they change. I mean, it's a system that. They gamed the BCS like nobody. Mike Slive did an amazing job. He figured out how to fix, you know, how to, you know, twist it and get it in your favor. And he did a completely great job of that in the SEC. Um, I do think you have so many great players down there. There's so many athletes. They put a lot of guys in the NFL. Um, so I think there's there's some reason behind some of the bias. Now, are they as dominant as people say? No, I mean it's definitely not. But you want to go out. And, and a playoff, I think, changes the fact that you can't just say, well, they've been the best all year. We're going to make them play. Alabama's going to play two tough games now, right? They're going to have to beat Ohio State and Oregon to win the national championship. And if they do, I think that's awesome. Like, hey, they're the best. They did a, had a great regular season, you know, one hiccup along the way. They beat the best team in the Big Ten, and then they beat the best team in the Pac-12. They are clearly the national champion. So I think that the playoff thing kind of, you know, if if Alabama gets a title here, it's because they deserve it because the, the road they're going to have to play to get through that. And the same thing with Florida State and all these other teams. I mean, you're going to have to play two tough games at the end. It's not we had this great resume, maybe didn't play a tough out-of-conference schedule, and then we get matched up with one team at the end. You win that and you win. Um, so I do like the playoff. I think it kind of changed the narrative a little bit. Hopefully we'll see more. I would like to see all the all the conferences play nine, nine teams, especially when you're in a 14-team conference and you're only playing eight. Um, I mean, you're missing almost half the conference in your schedule. So I don't think that's an apples to 
apples comparison. I think you get an extra, you know, it's an extra half loss or whatever for every team in the Pac-12 just because you're playing that extra conference game. So hopefully that kind of stuff changes. Um, but great stuff. Thanks for the stats. And uh, Justin, appreciate you sending that one in. It's a really long question, but since I had a segment all to myself, I just don't have to listen to other people talk. I can just talk and you listen to me. I thought I would answer that one there. So hopefully that was answered to your satisfaction. And uh, we got one more question wanted to get to. It's a voicemail question, and I almost forgot about it, but here we'll, we'll play it for you. Here you go. Hey, it's Robin Yakai. I haven't called for a while, but I just want to let you know. I think you guys do a great job. just wanted to talk about something. It's, you know, since UCLA lost to Stanford, um, it's interesting to look how they are making excuses for, you know, having that play. Why did they schedule Stanford after the USC game? Because I guess they feel that they came out flat because they wasted so much energy on on USC, so therefore they couldn't get up for Stanford. I think it's ludicrous. You can't get up for Stanford knowing that if you win that game, you go to the Pac-12 championship game. Stanford didn't really have anything to play for, but Pride, I mean, they, they were relegated to a lower-tier bowl, so they really didn't have anything to, to play for. UCLA had everything to play for. Besides, they were the one that everybody thought was going to get into the college football playoff anyway. So, you know, live up to the standards. Obviously, they can't handle the hype. Stanford was coming off of a rivalry game in itself and beating up on Cal, and many predicted Cal to actually win that game. But it looks like Stanford's getting their offensive line uh, situation squared away, and they look to be a better team than they were earlier in the year. So I just think it's ridiculous that they're crying that why do we got to play Stanford after USC, and they think it's ridiculous. Well, USC had to play another rival, too, in Notre Dame, and look how that turned out. We got up for the game and beat their butts. So anyway, I'd like to hear your comments on that. Anyway, Happy holidays. Bye. Thanks for that question. And, uh, yeah, you know, I didn't hear I, – I what I read about, I guess, or I just read a blurb on Twitter was that Rick Neuheisel had said that. And I think Rick Neuheisel is one of the best um, college football analysts that the Pac-12 Network has. Not that I get the Pac-12 Network, but everything I've seen from him, I think he does a great job. I've been on, like, radio stuff with him. And uh, he's I think he's really good at what he does. So I, I don't know. I'd have to go back and look and, and I, I apologize. I didn't, I didn't see this before um, and see what he kind of said, but I, yeah, I don't think that that's a, a legitimate complaint. If that was really one that was, was going on because, you know, USC had to play Notre Dame the next weekend. You know, they Stanford played Cal the week before. I mean, I, I it's, it's going to happen at the end of the season. I think you, you want to keep some the PAC 12 wants to keep some of these, uh, matchups going. USC and UCLA have to always play Cal and Stanford. They want all the California teams to play. So I think the schedule has to get a little creative. I mean, if you want to complain, you say that USC had to play every Pac-12 South opponent after they got a longer break than they did. So, I mean, I, I think that's a, a scheduling snafu. That's something you could legitimately complain about. But this is, you're talking about a game with 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds um, it's hard to stay up every week. USC had every reason to be up for the UCLA game. And UCLA completely dominated them. Looked like they were the better prepared team. It just wasn't even close. Um, and the next week, USC looks great. against. The, they were prepared. They were fired up. Um, it's hard to say why. You know, Could UCLA – it could have been in reverse. I mean, UCLA might have fell flat against USC and then pounded Stanford. Um, it's hard to pound them two weeks in a row. And so when a team like Oregon's able to do that, you kind of give them credit. It's on the coaches. I mean, you have to, you know, you have to try to manage that. And if you get too high one week, sometimes you, you stay high and get and play well the next week. And sometimes you kind of come crashing down because you put so much into that. 
Um, and maybe USC didn't put enough into the UCLA game, and so they had a lot left over to, to pound on Notre Dame. I mean, it's it's hard to say. So I don't think it's you got to say, hey, you shouldn't do that anymore. Because if you want to say USC and UCLA should end the season, then you have to move the USC-Notre Dame game. So they, they, the schedule makers have to kind of take all that into consideration. You don't want UCLA to not play a game when USC is at home against Notre Dame playing. So when you want that to, to, to line up well. When before the, the Pac-12 had a conference championship game, you could play USC-UCLA during championship weekend at the end. So USC would play Notre Dame and then come back with UCLA on the December 2nd weekend or whatever that, that when other conferences had their championship game. Now the Pac-12 has a championship game, so you need a game before that, and uh, that's kind of went there. So hopefully that answers your question. And, uh, yeah, I don't think there's any reason for complaints on, on either side. I think all these teams, you, you kind of have to play the schedule that's uh, ahead of you. It's going to be changing each and every year. Um, you know, is it fair that UCLA had to play Oregon and Washington and USC had Washington State and Oregon State? No, I mean, it's but it's going to switch next year. So it's it all kind of comes around. You have to, you know, whatever the cards are dealt, you kind of have to deal with them and, and just find a way to win. That's what these coaches' jobs are do. It's not always the ideal situation. you got to find a way to win. Thanks very much for tuning into the show this week and having that little segment with Just By Myself. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, certainly send in your questions, podcast at uscfootball.com. Uh, we'll have Coach Harvey Hyde back. We'll have Dan Weber back again next week. We'll find out what's going on as far as practice schedule. We just don't know that yet. Looks like USC is going to be going to San Diego on the 23rd, that's the last day that teams can go. I think Nebraska's going the exact same day. So it's tough two days after Christmas to have a bowl game. So it looks like the team will be in San Diego for the Christmas holiday, getting ready for USC versus Nebraska. So it should be a lot of fun. But thanks very much for tuning in to the Peristyle podcast. Sorry for Coach Harvey Hyde not being there. And don't forget, the last day, the final day, to take advantage of six months free, uscfootball.com membership. If you don't have time, if you don't listen to this until Tuesday or Wednesday, email me, Ryan, or podcast at uscfootball.com. Let me know, hey, I want to take advantage of this, and I'll see what I can do with Scout. Hopefully, we'll be able to get you in there a little bit after the buzzer. All right, thanks very much for tuning into the Peristyle Podcast. We will talk to you next week. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. And don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your iPod or MP3 player for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store.